In terms of releasing a latent potential, uh, women are a great investment because it really takes very little to light a woman on fire. Because I think you're, if we can undo this, this unconscious stuff that's happening in her brain, that's holding her back, that um, is keeping something from, from being released, and it really takes such a small intervention. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today's guest is Kristen Pressner, the Global Head of Human Resources for Roche Diagnostics based in Basel, Switzerland. Kristen is also a passionate advocate on women in leadership and the star of a popular TEDx talk called Are You Biased? Kristen, you are killing it. Thank you, Sally. And hey, right back at you. I am a huge fan of your work and you are killing it. Oh, thank you, Kristen. That feels nice to hear that. <laughs> um, so you have a really big job. Could you tell us, uh, I want to hear all about your career path, but I want to start with just hearing about what is it that, that you do now at Roche? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm the head of HR for uh, Roche Diagnostics Globally, and our corporate headquarters are here in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, Roche Globally has about 90,000 employees, and we're the world's largest biotech company and the world leader in in vitro diagnostics, which is diagnostics tests that happen outside the body. Um, and so I'm responsible for HR for the 35,000 employees um, across about 150 countries worldwide uh, that are in our diagnostics division. Uh, to bring it home a little bit, if you've ever been to the doctor and they suggested taking some blood and uh, running it uh, through a test to get you a test result, it was probably ours. Wow. And I want to hear about, you know, how your path led you to this job. But I also want to hear first about this um, TEDx talk that you did recently called Are You Biased? I'm really curious to know like, what inspired you to do the talk in the first place. I mean, I think it's a fabulous talk. Everybody has to check it out. We'll put a link on our site. It seems like it's a, a ton of work. You already have a very busy person. What inspired you to do the TEDx talk? Yeah, thanks for asking. And one one very important part of the title is that it's "Are you biased?" question mark I am. Okay. Um, because it's um, it actually uh, walks uh, the person through my own personal realization um, from feeling like I was an HR leader, a woman leader, uh, an executive who was very passionate about bringing women, more women, into leadership, and yet I came across an experience where I realized that I was acting in a way that was biased against women leaders, which shocked me on a couple of levels. One, I didn't think that it was possible for me to be biased against what I am, <laughs> which is a woman leader. And secondly, it shocked me because I really thought I was one of the good guys. And when I realized it was like a, a punch in the gut to realize that I was actually contributing to the problem. The, the specific scenario that I share in the talk is a realization that within a few days of each other, two members of my team asked me to take a look at their compensation. And my reaction to the man's request was along the lines of, yeah, I'll look into it. And my reaction to the woman's request was along the lines of, I'm pretty sure you're good. And it was only later as I was doing some, some research on unconscious bias that it hit me that that was real life unconscious bias playing out. And I had an opportunity to fix it but I realized that if I didn't share my story, it might end there. And I wondered how many times I haven't had the opportunity to catch myself. And so I set about um, sharing my humbling moment in the hopes that it could provide a learning for many others. And can you talk a little bit about the strategy that you propose in your TED Talk, your TEDx Talk, for 
kind of catching ourselves when we're being biased? Absolutely. So um, what I do in the talk, and it's it's a short eight minutes, and that's on purpose. It's intentionally kind of a short pill to swallow, and it walks through what unconscious bias is. Um, and I share some slides that show that if we look at what are our expectations of men, um, generally we expect men to be leaders and assertive and strong and driven, and we expect women to be supportive or helpful or sensitive. If you boil it down a bit more, we see men as taking charge and women as taking care. And there comes a rub when you want to have more women in leadership, but unconsciously in the background of our brains, without us even realizing it, perhaps what's being reinforced is that women don't take charge, they take care. It's kind of the root cause of a lot of the challenges of getting more women into top leadership. And so what happened in my case was I did have a man and a woman ask me for the same thing. I was looking at this research on unconscious bias, and I realized one of those taking charge kind of words that we associate with males is provider. And that was when the light bulb went off for me. Did I have a different reaction between these two scenarios because I see him as a provider, but I didn't see her as a provider? And I kind of took this massive step back and realized, I think that was what was happening. And it's, Sally, it's even more shocking when you realize that for the last, for the entire time I've been married and I'm a, uh, my husband and I have four children, um, for that 17 years, um, my husband's been a stay-at-home father. So I've been the sole provider for my family for 17 years, and yet that exposure of, of woman as provider, man not as provider, for 17 years in my own house, in my own face every day, wasn't enough to overcome the unconscious bias that I had that men provide and women don't. And so I was shaken to my core because I realized that this could be causing me to behave in ways that are completely inconsistent with what I hold true and what I value, and I wouldn't even know it. And so, but I realized when I compared the two, I could catch myself. It was because a man and a woman asked me at the same time that I could catch myself. And so I could fix that scenario and get it right. But, but then I thought, well, how do I, how do I, in every situation for the rest of my life, am I to hope that I have, you know, two opposite scenarios to be able to compare? And in that moment, I realized, actually, you can do this comparison mentally. You can mentally flip whoever you're dealing with. And it will illuminate for you if perhaps there's something going on. It just feels weird, to be perfectly honest. And I call it flip it to test it. And so what I did on my slide was I had a picture of a man next to the, you know, words like leader and strong and driven and a picture of a woman next to words like supportive and helpful and sensitive. And I flipped the pictures. And when you see a woman next to words like leader and strong and driven and you see a man next to words like supportive and helpful and sensitive, it's weird. Mm -hmm. And in that weirdness, I think it helps people to catch themselves. And when you catch yourself, you can move from unconscious decision-making to conscious decision-making. And so I've been really thrilled because the idea of flip it to test it has really um, taken off a bit. And, and um, I'm excited because it's just a bit changed the discussion that we're having internally. Um, and with it seems to be externally as well, because it's not judgmental. It's not saying, gosh, Sally, I think you might be biased. It's saying, do you think this is an opportunity to flip it, to test it? And when we, when we go to conscious decision-making, then we can make a better decision, perhaps. I mean, I think this is so needed. I think the idea of, first of all, that bias is unconscious is an important thing to focus on because there really aren't that many people who are going through life saying, oh, I think women are less than, and that's why I'm doing this, like on a conscious level, right? But we as women experience bias constantly. So obviously it's there, but it's not always conscious. And then when 
you trying to attack it as if it's a conscious decision, it's not effective, right? You need to attack it as what it is. And the idea that we all have our own, even as women, internalized misogyny is something that I think has really gone to the forefront recently um, with the election in the United States and seeing um, women, you know, vote for someone who weeks before was shown had to be a, a repeat sexual assaulter. Just the level, the extent to which women have internalized the misogyny of the culture is really quite terrifying. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if we can't even be on our own side, right? Yeah. Um, well, and, thing. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and for you, someone who has, you know, this is your passion and you've been living the opposite experience of being the breadwinner to still have it that just shows how kind of pernicious this unconscious bias is. Exactly. And, and I, there's something about the term like unconscious bias or implicit bias, et cetera. I mean, they're like, um, I don't know, it sounds like HR mumbo jumbo a bit. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I'm an HR professional. Of course, I intellectually get what unconscious bias is. And I was like, yeah, you know, I get what it is. And, and all you guys are suffering from it. <laughs> but somehow I imagined prior to this event that I was one of the good guys. I was one of the rare people who could I don't know, through my superpowers, um, achieve some, some level of enlightenment that I wasn't subject to it. And so I think that was what was so, for me, important about sharing this is, you know, you don't get a pass. You don't get to because you don't believe um, that it should be that way. It, that doesn't make it not so. And one of the analogies that I use is, um, I, I remember back once as a little girl driving in the car with my mother and she, um, she had to sneeze. And when she sneezed, it, it caused her driving to really jerk the, the steering wheel. And we were almost in an accident. And as a little girl, I was really shocked by that. And I said, if we had gotten in an accident, whose fault would that have been? And she said, well, it would have been mine because I'm driving. And I said, yeah, but I mean, you sneezed. You can't not sneeze. You can't help but sneeze. And she said, no, but it's my responsibility as a driver to sneeze and correct for it. And for me, that's the analogy. Um, and perhaps I think we need to rebrand unconscious bias um, because it's a brain sneeze. Our brain sneeze. There's nothing we can do about it other than be aware of it and correct for it. But we're each responsible for our own brains. Yeah. And I think the tricky thing is also when you're trying to combat sexism and racism, um, when it's unconscious, I mean, a lot of it is conscious. I'm not trying to say there's no such thing as conscious bias because there's obviously a ton of that as well. But, um, (laughs) for those who are, you know, good intentions, but have the unconscious bias, if you want to bring them around to being less biased, coming at them in a way that's like you're being biased is not actually that effective, right? Like in an accusational type way, because they're not even aware. It doesn't mean they're off the hook. Mm -hmm. It just, you know, in terms of how best to combat it when it is unconscious. I mean, there's tons of people who have conscious bias. I'm not saying that (laughs) that doesn't exist, but I think it's more pernicious when it's unconscious because, you know, you don't even know it's there. Yeah. And that's, that's a bit my goal because, you know, I'm, I'm a pragmatic person and I'm, I'm also, I'm wildly optimistic that we are close to a tipping point on this topic. And, and for me, you're right. There are, there are people who are consciously biased and they're not the target audience. But the vast majority of us truly would be beside ourselves to imagine that we would ever behave in this way. I mean, when you ask people, you know, do you think that, you know, women shouldn't be leaders? Um, you know, I, I was looking at a, an article today. I mean, if you're Latino, you're less likely to get pain medis- medication than if you're white. If you're elderly woman, you're less likely to get life-saving interventions than if you're an elderly man. If you're a man being evaluated for a job as a, a lab manager, 
you're more likely to get mentorship and be judged as capable and offered a higher starting salary than if you're a woman. It goes on and on. And I think the vast majority of the world would say, no, I don't believe those things. I, I don't want to contribute to those things. The problem is how, if you're not even aware it's happening. And that's what I like about the flip it to test it idea. Um, I do it all the time. I mean, I, I'm flipping to test it all the time. And, and sometimes I flip it to test it and I say, okay, I'm okay with where I landed. And, and sometimes I flip it to test it and I say, you know what, that makes me uncomfortable. And now there's something to think about consciously. You know, I recently was really looking inside myself to seeing what biases I had. I was raised a feminist. I've been like a feminist my whole life, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I definitely don't have any bias against women, you know, same thing as you. And then I realized that I have bias. I think this was brought on actually by watching your, your talk. I realize that I have bias against my own capabilities. Like I feel like I've always kind of given myself the short shrift, you know, the imposter syndrome or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. Not when I was in school. I feel like in in school, you know, girls, they feel comfortable. They are used to being the best and, you know, it's just, it's built for them or whatnot. But when I got out into the, the career world, the, the working world, where I think I really undershot my capabilities because I think it was some kind of internalized view of, well, this is what men succeed at. Oh, absolutely. I had a situation the other day where my um, someone was chatting with uh, my 15-year-old daughter on the phone, and I, it happened to be that I could hear both sides of the conversation. And the question was, what's your favorite subject in school? And my daughter said, math, which, which makes me beam, I have to say. And uh, the answer came back, oh, a girl who likes math. And, oh, and, you know, and I, I was doing a flip it to test it. In fact, later that day, I overheard my husband saying to the same daughter that he really liked math. And so I flipped it to test it. And I said, oh, a boy who likes math, you know, that would be a ridiculous thing to say. So why is it why is it not ridiculous to say, oh, a girl who likes math? I mean, um, I think you're exactly right. We internalize these things. We have ideas of what women should be. And we even as women are subject to these same biases. And so just the same way I was, none of us is immune and it applies to ourselves as well. And that's um, equally challenging because how do you overcome the tapes inside your own head not being in your favor? And the crazy thing is that we often are the ones who perpetuate the kind of patriarchal um, gender roles and things like that um, as mothers, as we're raising our children, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, often it can be... I, women who are passing these lessons down to the next generation, um, you know, because most mothers are still, women still are playing the lead parent role in most families. Yeah. Even, yeah. Even when yeah. both are working, but, but also, I mean, in my case, I mentioned my husband's a stay at home father. Um, I work. And so we have just reverse stereotypical roles, if you will. And I still remember in the early days, breaking my back to leap out of work, to go to, you know, all four kids every single time plays at schools, you know, the drill. And I'd look around and I realized that um, I, we were the only ones where both parents were there. And it really caused me at one point in my career to take a step back and say, why am I holding myself to the standard? Because moms are supposed to be at these things. Um, they have a parent here. They have their primary caregiving parent here. You know, why am I holding myself to the standard? And I think um, to your point, I mean, because in my mind, that's what moms do. Right. Yeah, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... You know, I was I was listening to um, one of your other podcasts today with Samantha Edis, and I think she raised some really good points with regards to the expectations we set. And I'm really glad that I had kind of that wake up moment in my career, because the conversation that we ended up having with the kids after that was, you know, what are your most important things? Because I want to be at your most important things versus coming at things from an angle of 
good moms are at everything and good moms are always home for dinner and good moms, you know, show up for every soccer match and every school play. Because quite honestly, not everyone matters as much to the kids. And the important thing is that you're there for what's important to them. Oh, definitely. I want to hear more about your career path. Um, So you're pretty much at the top of your field in your current position. What are some of the career highlights that you've had or or things that you're particularly proud of uh, from your career? Um, I would probably share a couple uh, moments where I look back and I'm not sure where I got the courage. I I share these stories freely in the hopes that they encourage uh, another woman somewhere out there uh, to take a similar leap um, because um, I found um, I personally, but a lot of women I know are expert catastrophizers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm really good at kind of fast forwarding the picture to the worst possible scenario. And um, I just generally haven't seen that happen as much with men. Um, In my experience, just generalizing men are more inclined to kind of take the leap and figure they'll sort it. And uh, at least in my experience with the women that I offer jobs and opportunities to, they're more inclined to kind of run all the scenarios and be convinced that the odds aren't good. They're going to find a way to sort it and therefore decline. And so um, I'm trying to encourage women to get more in the space of uh, jump and sort it rather than uh, overanalyze it and then don't jump. Uh, so the two times in my career that I feel like were, were noteworthy uh, jump then sort it moments were when I was working for Roche uh, Diagnostics in our North American headquarters in the U.S. and was offered the opportunity to take an international assignment to Basel. At the time, our kids were one, three, five, and seven. And um, the thought of packing up and flying internationally, let alone living internationally with that brood, um, intimidated the heck out of me. And we have very small washing machines here. And I just want you to think for a moment about the laundry in the household of someone who has four children <laughs> under the age of um, seven and under. And so um, my husband still laughs about the fact that he found me crying in a heap of laundry once saying, you know, what were we thinking moving to Switzerland with all these little kids? But moving to Switzerland uh, with our children has been um, one of the best things, both professionally, but also personally that we've ever done. And, and it took not knowing, it took leaping and sorting. And we have now, it'll, in October, it'll have been 10 years that we lived here, which blows my mind. And um, just today, um, one of my older children applied for a Swiss passport. And, um, you know, their children are trilingual. It's really been uh, quite an opportunity for them to get it, to experience the world in a different way. And um, they're, they're less American than they are Swiss at this point. Um, the other one that I would wow, share. trilingual, is, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, that's normal here. <laughs> uh, I'm still, I'm still only, um, only able to speak English, but uh, my kids can uh, linguistically run circles around me. <laughs> um, the other big moment I would say in my career where I, I had to take the leap moment, um, before I took this role, I was offered a step into a role where I would be responsible for HR for Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Latin America which is geographically half the world. And quite honestly, the first thing I had to do was go buy a map and uh, try and figure out where most of my countries were. And um, when I was offered that job, uh, it was a a huge step up. It was, you know, a very global role, which I hadn't done before. It was parts of the world I had no familiarity with. Notice, you know, the U.S. isn't anywhere in there. Um, And the job was an hour and a half drive from where I live now. And Uh, My husband and I looked at potentially moving and for a variety of reasons that didn't really work out. And so, you know, I was kind of in this mode of I'm not even sure if I can do the job back to your point of imposter syndrome. And I guess what are the stories that our brains tell ourselves? And um, and then I was like, you know, and on top, it's a job of 50 percent travel. And I've got these four little kids. And on top, you know, I'm going to be commuting like three hours a day, an hour and a half each way. And and I'd really gotten to the point where I decided just wasn't going to work. 
um, and I was going to have to decline the job. And, and I was highly likely to decline the job uh, for the reason that I would cite, which would be family reasons, which is like, no one's going to argue with that. If you say, I just can't take it for family reasons, no one will argue. Oh, okay, we understand. And then just so happened before I had a chance to decline it, I had lunch with a colleague and um, I, I had shared with her that I was um, going to turn down that opportunity after lunch. And it was really funny. I just said, oh, I was offered this job and I hadn't gotten to the other half of the sentence, which was that I was going to decline it. And she went, oh, you'd be great at that job. And literally, that was all she said. And in that moment, it really just made me pause. And I thought, like, that wasn't a scenario I'd run. The you, I could be great at that job scenario. I'd run every other one, but I hadn't run that one. And so I rethought my approach. I did take that job. I learned so much. And I still point to it often when I'm having conversations with both men and women, but primarily with women in the organization, as an example of, I took it and I sorted those things later. I didn't know when I took the job how I was going to sort the commute or the 50% travel or learn those geographies, but I did. And for me, when I, about a year ago, took this job as the global head of HR now for the diagnostics division, sure, there were scary moments and it is a big step up, but I can look back and say, well, I figured out how to sort it before. So I assume I can extrapolate that I will figure out how to sort it here too. So it sounds like we have a topic for your next TED, your next TEDx talk. <laughs> What would that be? Your next, your next hashtag. What jump, jump and then sort it. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Let me write that down. Let's trademark it. Flip it to test it. Jump then sort it. (laughs) That's good. I like it. You could be in charge Um, of marketing. (laughs) And I I think actually, if we live by those two hashtags alone, we'd be in a pretty good spot. The the kind of jump first um, idea I've heard. I would say almost every woman I've had on this podcast has yeah, said. And it's so easy to say and it's so hard to do. And so what is it in that moment that makes that makes one jump, right? And it was the, the irony wasn't lost on me that what made the difference for me was one trusted colleague encouraging me. That was it. And so, you know, really since I've had that epiphany, I've really made it my mission to to encourage as many people as I can to go for it because Honestly, as an HR person, I see so much potential left on the table. And for me, I don't think there's anything sadder than potential that's being held back from a world that needs it. Yeah, I'm right there with you. The potential of women that's being held back is something that upsets me on such a deep level, and it inspired me to create this podcast. And that's exactly why you're killing it, Sally, because <laughs> I, I think, because you know, I said I'm pragmatic. I think in terms of return on investment, in terms of releasing a latent potential, uh, women are a great investment because it really takes very little to light a woman on fire. Because I think you're, if we can undo this this unconscious stuff that's happening in her brain, that's holding her back, that um, is keeping something from, from being released, and it really takes such a small intervention. And so uh, I'm thankful for the work that you're doing with the podcast and in other places to release that. And, and it's exactly what my heart's desire is as well. We need to unleash the power of women. Well, thank you, Kristen. And let me say, I've been thinking... A lot. I've been seeing a lot of examples recently of instances where bias, both gender and racial bias, is actually against companies and um, businesses. Uh, well, we know this. It's it's against their financial interest. Oh yeah. Right. It's it's actually there's. I just recently I've seen so many examples where you know the fact that they're biased is costing them money. Yeah. Well, or discriminating or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in terms of VC funding, not going to women and minority um owned startups, 
you know, like they are losing out on huge opportunities, you know, other silly things. Like recently I saw, um, you know, a bunch of women who were like, we want to have shorts that our girls can wear that are not, you know, mm-hmm. short shorts that are not, no, no need for a nine-year-old girl to be wearing super short shorts, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I found one company seized on that and their shorts are all sold out, you know, and all these other companies that are selling clothes that we don't want are missing out on a huge market opportunity because they're trying to like, you know, sexualize young girls. But just, you know, I just feel like like time and time and time again, I keep seeing examples of where not only is it wrong and biased, but it's really against companies' financial interests to be biased. Obviously, all that untapped potential, of course, is a huge loss to the economy and to productivity and, you know, opportunities out there. Well, that's exactly it. And I just, I find it so fascinating because I was at a, 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 future thinking diversity event last week. And it still feels like a lot of people are leading with, well, it's the right thing to do. And as much as I hate to say this, I haven't found the vast majority of people to be wildly motivated by doing the right thing, or we'd all be a lot thinner and, you know, um, <laughs> particularly not corporations, you know, I mean, they, I mean, yes, there are good acting corporations, but they basically have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to make profits, right? To be profitable. That's, that is what they are built to do. So, you know, the more persuasive ways to get at getting women into leadership and corp and at least in the corporate world is by talking about the productivity and, and the bottom line. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, I was just coming off of a panel discussion here internally in the organization, you know, the world of work as we know it is changing, you know, by 2020, 50% of the workforce is going to be millennials, you know, technology is completely changing the way we're interfacing digital, you know, the world is becoming more digitalized. We're not competing for, for jobs with our next door neighbor, we're competing across the world. It's a world economy. And as that happens, and it's also a supply and demand game, because there's a large portion of the um, employed population that will be leaving the workforce and fewer people are coming up to take their place. And so it, it creates a situation where um, whether employers like it or not, we're in a position where we have to figure out how to capitalize on the talented people in front of us. You can't win otherwise. That's really interesting. Can you talk about where your career path um, led you before your current position? I mean, you've talked about some of the opportunities that you had, but can you talk about um, the duration of your career path and kind of what it's looked like? Sure, sure. So I started my career in HR, working in a, a temporary agency, matching people up with temporary jobs um, and full-time jobs. Uh, and then um, I had the opportunity to, I was living in Dallas at the time and had the opportunity to move into high tech. And I, um, I worked at Texas Instruments for nearly 10 years. Um, some of the best years of my life. It's a wonderful um, place to work. And um, during that time, had a variety of um, HR roles. Uh, it's the wonderful thing about working in a big company is you can try a lot of different things on for size and get a lot of breadth of experience without ever having to leave the company. So I worked in global mobility and um, mergers and acquisitions and um, as an HR business partner, uh, as a generalist for part of the business. Um, but about that point, um, I was then married and the children started to come and um, we were keen geographically. Um, to be a bit closer to my husband's family. And that led us back to, um, it led me to a move to Roche Diagnostics. And I'm really thankful that I've been in the position to be able to choose companies where I'm really excited about the purpose that they drive because we're truly making the world a better place. And for me, you know, on good days, it's easy to get up and come to work. On bad days, it's easy to get up and come to work because I know that what we're doing makes a difference in patients' lives. And so 
I joined Roche Diagnostics as an HR business partner, um, but within two years was brought to Basel, Switzerland for a role in our uh, global learning and development organization. So um, in the big part of Roche, the 90,000. After about four years of doing that, I moved to the Europe, Middle East, Africa, Latin America role, did that for about four years. And then uh, just about a year ago, I was offered the position to be the global head of HR for the diagnostics division. And every single one of those jobs that I've held, I've said, I have the coolest job in the company. I hope I never leave the job that I have. And I've been blown away because the next job somehow miraculously was even cooler. That's awesome that you found exactly where you fit. I mean, how do you think you were able to identify that this was going to be an area that you would really succeed in and enjoy and thrive? So let's let's be truthful here. Every single one of those roles wasn't a perfect fit. And so maybe I was a little over optimistic in my last answer because one of those jobs, I love to tell the story. When I worked in the corporate role, I was in the center of excellence for um, learning and organizational effectiveness. And I learned so much in that role. However, um, you know when you pet a cat's fur in the wrong direction? It won't kill them, but they sure get irritated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I felt like a cat whose fur had been getting pet in the wrong direction for the four years that I was in that role because my heart beats faster for being really close to the business and and getting kind of the day-to-day feedback that what you're doing is making an impact and helping drive the business forward. In, In these center of excellence roles, they're much more strategic and they're driving process and alignment and strategy across the broader organization. And both are really, really valuable, but one got me less high than the other. And um, and so during those four years, it was a bit hard. It was especially a bit hard because not only was my fur getting pet in the wrong direction, but I wasn't an expert. And, you know, when you talked about imposter syndrome, it was really hard for me and incongruous for me to put myself in a role where I had to put myself forward as the expert when I was actually in a developmental role. I found that really, really hard um, and incongruous. And so um, in looking back, I realized that it was probably the most important career step that I've ever taken. Um, One, it was what was the pivot point for the international assignment um, and coming to headquarters. But it was also, you know, you learn the most when it's the hardest a lot of the time. And um, I lean heavily on the learnings that I had from that time, and I really encourage people to get a breadth of experience in their career, whether that's an HR track or otherwise, because if you stay on too specialized of a track, you can paint yourself into a corner where you have fewer options later. And I'm all about making sure you've got options going forward because we don't know how the world's going to evolve. So Kristen, one thing that I always want to ask my interviewees is how do they juggle everything so that we can learn from it? However, I have had people tell me that They don't like being asked that because it's something that only women get asked. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it fails to flip it to test it uh, test, right? (laughs) Um, Have you had that experience yourself and how have you handled it? I think that's a great question. Um, And I love your use of flip it to test it. Nicely done. So I have, I do get those kinds of questions. And I I would say I had a, a pivotal experience about a year ago when I took this job because we were moving around the world, doing town halls. You know, I'm being introduced to the organization. I'm newly on stage in this role and people want to get to know a bit about me. And a bit of the legacy of what people know about me is they know that Kristen has lots of kids. I have more than the average number of kids. And so um, without fail, I ended up getting asked a lot of questions with regards to how I was juggling all of the travel with the new job and having four kids. And 
I would answer the question politely, but it wasn't passing the flip it to test it uh, challenge for me. And so uh, at one point I said, you know what, that is a great question. And uh, I, would, I think we should ask Mark, my colleague who got hired onto the same leadership team at about the same time and who also has kids the same age. And, and at that point, I think it really underscored for people that this is a question that we only ask women. And when we only ask women that question, it makes her question her choices as if something's wrong, and it makes everyone around question her choices. And that contributes to that imposter syndrome that you were talking about earlier. And so I think the world would be a better place if both Marks and Kristen's got asked how they were juggling their family and their big new job. Um, I right. think that would be yeah. a better world all the way around. Yeah, because it also makes an assumption that taking care of the kids is the woman's role, right? If the men aren't being asked that question. Yeah, and it assumes that the marks of the world aren't very active parents in their households and having those same same cares and concerns, which they do, and they're not allowed to talk about them because they don't get asked. I ask it on this podcast because I actually want to know, and I know that our listeners want to know, (laughs) you know, but I did have a guest uh, recently, Amanda Hesser, um, who's the CEO of Food 52, said, you know, that she bristled at the question, and I had to say to her, well, I don't interview men on this podcast. (laughs) If I did, I would ask them the same question. But um, how do you keep a balance? I mean, I know you mentioned before that, so I'm asking you just because I want to know and because I want our listeners to know that they can take a big job and it is possible. Um, Now, critical to your ability to do that has been having your husband as a lead parent, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I can't say enough things about the role that he plays. Being a stay-at-home parent is a really hard job and being a stay-at-home parent to four children is a really hard job. (laughs) And I I don't think that um, I would be able to have the um, full career success that I would have been able to have if we, we didn't have the luxury of that setup. And I realize it is a privilege. Um, but, uh, that being said, um, I am very active in raising the children and, um, once I learned, uh, to jump and then sort it, I think that it became clear to me that catastrophizing doesn't really help. Um, but what is it that if you take a a big step back, what do you want for your children? And what I want for my children is for them to have strong role models, both, both from both of their parents, from both men and women. And I want them to believe that they can be anything that their heart desires for them to be, that that's possible. And so um, we've made a point of sharing with the kids openly and honestly when I've got challenges or trade-offs that I need to make because of career or travel or whatever. And um, by good luck, most of the time it works out. And on rare occasions, it doesn't work out. And um, the children understand because in the macro, um, they also want that bigger thing that I want too. You know, one example is this time last year, I'd taken the new job. I was also doing the old job. I was also preparing a TEDx talk. That meant I had a lot of things that were happening in evenings and the weekends that were keeping me away from my family. And and while they would say, well, we miss you, they also knew that that was in service of something bigger. And quite honestly, the more that Flip It to Test It starts to change behavior, you know, my children are proud. You know, my my 16-year-old son shared with me the other day, they were talking about bias in school. I think they were reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And they were talking about racial bias. And my son said, you know, my mom gave a TEDx talk on this. And so the whole class watched it. And I thought, man, at 16, I'm not sure that I would have wanted to draw attention to my parents. But he's proud. That, for me, makes makes those trade-offs worth it if you're doing it in service of something bigger. That is so awesome. Plus, you're raising a, 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 you know, we talk a lot about how do we raise a feminist son. So Mm -hmm. 
Good job. Oh, thank you. He, he, <laughs> I, I tell you, we have uh, four great kids. And, you know, there's a, a great uh, Michael Kimmel quote from his TED Talk, um, privilege is invisible to those who have it. Um, and I love that because it is, right? If you are the beneficiary of privilege, you don't even realize it <laughs> because that's what privilege is. And I, I talk a lot to our children. Um, they are very privileged. And my son, especially, he recognizes that and he recognizes because he has a voice, because he comes from a place of privilege, he has to exercise that on behalf of others who have less of a voice. And it's been cool to watch him grow up and, and exercise that voice and share those things because he knows not everyone has a voice for themselves. Yeah, this idea of privilege being blind is so important because I think it's it's where, you know... <laughs> In, in America right now, a lot of the, you know, white men that don't feel like they're privileged because they, they can't see it, right? And I read this paper back in college, and I've, I've searched for it since because it has such an impact on me. And it was, like, basically written for white women to understand that they are not aware of their privilege as white just as men are not aware of their privilege as men. Yeah. So as someone who's, you know, women can see how men aren't aware and they can see all the ways like, oh, they don't get it, they don't understand it, they don't even experience they don't see it. You know, that's our experience as women. But if for the white woman to understand what it would be like to be a woman of color, right. you know, that's a good window into realizing how clueless I am. <laughs> we a white woman, white women are. Um, I mean, there's some that have done a better job at, at being more aware, but how we're blind to our privilege as being white. Um, and that's, that's a great a example compare. Right? because you, can't, you, you're, you can see uh, male privilege, but you can't see white privilege because you are the beneficiary of it. And, you know, I had this, this example. It's a dumb one, but it's illustrative. I was on an airplane and I'm, I'm tall. And so I've never had to think twice about um, putting my bag in the um, overhead bin. It's not hard for me. And I saw this short person struggling, struggling, struggling to get her bag up there. And then she had to eventually stand on the seat to do it. Um, and I offered to help her. Um, and in that moment, I realized I've never really thought about what it's like to be short because I'm not. Right. And so these are these flip it to test it moments, right? You know, how, you know, always inside our own brains, we can be asking ourselves, you know, how might the situation be different? And I do think in certain cases, it is hard to see that. It is hard to see past our own privilege. But um, in my experience, if you ask people with genuine curiosity, they'd love to tell you. Just like you would, I'm sure, be happy to share examples of where you felt like you weren't treated the same because you were a woman. Um, when a man who's curious wants to be a, an ally and comes and asks the questions and wants to know what he can do to help, we're happy to share. And I think that works all the way around. Yeah. So, I mean, when I said we're blind, right, and we can't see it, we, we don't see it if we don't try to see it, right? That's, I guess that's the difference. You have to make effort to see it. Yes. Um, our yes. kind of natural default state is to not see it, but it is possible to see it and it's our obligation to see it, right? Yes. And this is um, a bit of what I was trying to share in the in the TEDx talk, because I think, you know, those of us who kind of are in this space and talking about these things, you know, we intellectually get what bias is and unconscious bias, et cetera. But let's face it, the vast majority of people are not thinking about this on a daily basis at all. And so the default position is to assume that whatever you value is how you behave. And until we shine a light for people that that isn't exactly the case, and then you have the um, openness of mind to be curious and to explore and to understand where maybe you aren't experiencing the world the same way as others around you, then an opportunity is born. 
Well, Kristen, we are out of time, but this has been such an interesting conversation. We will share your uh, links to your TEDx talk, and I want everybody to listen to that and check it out. Looking forward to to seeing the Jump It to Sort It talk. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds good. Thanks for the great idea. And Sally, thanks for having me on the show. I love your podcast. Thanks so much for being here. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.